Hello, I'm Hardin Coleman, and you're listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. As Lindsay Barquet and I embark upon the second semester of this podcast, it is impossible not to have interpersonal violence, polarization, and the failure to negotiate peaceful resolution of conflict all at the front of our mind. From shootings in Buffalo, Ivaldi, and elsewhere, to failure to refine bipartisan solutions to economic and social challenges, to the war in the Ukraine, it is hard not to fear for all our children in the world they will inherit. At the same time, it is important to remind ourselves about those people and community efforts that are, are focused on hope. There are a great many people who are working hard to create caring communities in which all children have equal opportunities to flourish. Communities in which there's a focus on character development, not only in terms of what it means for each individual person, but also in terms of what it means to efforts to create environments that embrace and serve everyone well. In this semester, we want to share the story of individuals inside and outside of educational settings who are using their talents and passions to support positive youth development with a particular focus on equity. If you want to follow this podcast and get more information about the participants, you can do so online at ccsr.substack.com. We also want to hear your thoughts about what brings you hope. Please leave your comments online or email me at harden at bu.edu. So Susan, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us and, and looking forward to hearing um, the ways in which you integrate an ethic of caring, a focus on community and character development in your work. Uh, and so we'd love it if you start to introduce yourself to our, to our community. Sure, thanks. So my name is Sue Lucy. Um, I have the privilege of leading Mass Insight Education and Research. I've been uh, president and CEO there for over six years, um, which I still um, personally find hard to believe. Um, we work to promote equity of opportunity and outcome in K-12 education with a particular focus on those who have been systemically marginalized so that all students can achieve both their academic and personal potential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we do that by working with schools, districts, communities, and states. Um, really, we talk about it as from the classroom to the state house. And I'd love to give you just some specific examples. That'd be great. Um, so, we work both in Massachusetts as well as nationally. Um, in Massachusetts in particular, we've been the state's partner in their advanced placement STEM and English program. Um, and the, that program's going on its 15th year. Um, and the, the goal of that program is specifically to provide additional supports to, um, again, to students who've been systemically marginalized or groups of students. So particularly black, brown and low income students and their teachers so that those students are more likely to be in AP uh, and to be successful in AP with the hope that they will qualify for college credit. In that program, we serve about 10,000 students and over 500 teachers each year. Mm -hmm. um, in Boston specifically, we're in 14 high schools, but we're also, <clears throat> excuse me, around the state. To give an example of specific equity work at the state level, so again, in Massachusetts, we've been working hard 
albeit not successfully yet, um, to get um, an AP credit bill passed um, at the state house. And um, a number of um, representatives and senators have joined in that effort. Um, but our observation is that even within the state institutions, there's not um, equal treatment of AP scores for credit. So you can go to one institution and with a three uh, qualify for credit, another institution might require a four or a five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that has disparate impacts when you look at the data uh, in terms of students who are more likely to get a three versus a, a four or a five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. In Massachusetts and also nationally, we also do, um, we call them school improvement services, but um, they are basically diagnostics, planning supports, and implementation supports. Um, over the last couple of years, we our work again at the school district and state level has impacted about 9,000 schools um, Mm -hmm. annually. Um, In particular, um, we do equity audits, which are a growing um, area of work for us, really looking at, um, as you well know, Hardin, um, barriers to equity occur everywhere from the real, you know, the relationship between the teacher and the student, up through the curriculum and instruction, through you know school assignment policies, funding formulas, etc. Um, and then another example, and then I'll stop, um, is our Philadelphia work. Um, we're in our second year of supporting about forty-six schools in the dis- school district of Philadelphia. Um, those schools are um, predominantly what they call. Um, CSI schools, um, Comprehensive Support and Improvement, Mm -hmm. which means um, they've been identified uh, for low performance. So we are, um, our team has been working very hard to support those schools in really building the capacity to enact their plans um, on behalf of improving education for kids. That's great. That's a lot of rich work. So I, I actually have a couple questions. No, 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 it's great. No, it's very exciting, boy. And that's what, you know, I think they, they, the organization has always been excited because you are really there helping at the at the ground level drive change in schools, which is where kids get, which where it's where we see kids. So right. the first question I have, just for clarification, is not everyone in the world, there was this whole movement around AP, AP and that uh, a, a highly successful school had to offer AP. Um, and so we, there was a lot of introduction of AP in different places. Um, but others can make an argument that by creating these honors selective class, you're not really meeting the needs of the majority of the poor black and brown kids in your district for whom, um, you know, like in Boston, you know, 30% of the kids entering um, ninth grade uh, have so many early warning signals, most like most of them won't, won't will drop out, let alone take AP. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about and, and if you're doing school improvement work, which is a whole system change, how do you, how do you explain the focus on AP sure. as an equity strategy? So um, a few like two or three months ago, a colleague and I had lunch with Bob Balfance, who as you know is a researcher at John Hopkins University. 
-hmm. And we were talking with him about AP and early college and all of that. And he said, you know, what's really important for kids is that they're prepared to get decent grades in challenging courses. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, it doesn't, he was agnostic about how the challenging courses yeah. were framed. But what I would say is, so what we have done is used advanced placement as the platform for challenging coursework. Mm -hmm. I think your point is well taken about um, often who is an, and who is not an AP. And that's exactly what we work to change. Mm -hmm. And then I think it is very important that we also do the systems work yep. because there is only so much, no matter how gifted the educators in a school are, um, there's only so much you can do, you know, in 10th, 11th, 12th grade in AP mm -hmm. that may, you know, may be, um, you know, learning losses or interrupted learning that has gone back for many, many years yeah. for a given yeah. student for a whole variety mm -hmm. of, of reasons. And so I, I think we need both. I think we need multiple ways for students to have um, high school be an on-ramp to an accelerative on-ramp to college and career. I think AP is one of them. When I was an urban superintendent, as you know, I was in Providence, Rhode Island. The thing I liked about AP was it was high quality curriculum. And so I didn't have to have, not that I didn't want to, but I didn't have to have insured um, a whole 12 years of quality curriculum to start raising the rigor at the high school level. And I did have, everywhere I went, there were parents of color mm -hmm. who would say to me, you know, superintendent, the system focuses so much on the students who are behind yeah. that my student is not getting the challenge he or she needs and deserves. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think, um, AP is a platform of value. And yep. what we're really trying to get at is decent grades and challenging courses. Yes. And, and increase access. I mean, I heard is that I heard you suggest it's not an either or, not either Correct. the remedial work or advanced work. There's the have to work. So the example would be Adrian Min's calculus project, where yes, identifying exactly. what's happening in the middle school area so that more uh, historically disadvantaged. I love that work. To actually take advantage of AP and not just throw them the rule. And so that's and that so that, that speaks to your system change work that that to drive equity in a school system, it's not a it's not a pick your favorite project, whether it's AP right. or or um, uh, project adventure or whatever. It's really there we have to think about the data across the whole district and what systemic changes need to be made. Yes, and we building on that, we talk a lot about coherence. Mm -hmm. So it is, you don't have a coherent system if all you do to, you know, increase rigor for kids is introduce AP, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to have yeah. all the 
all the scaffolding supports opportunities mm -hmm. for students from pre-K to 12. Um, and at the same time, um, again, as a superintendent, I was always trying to think in a couple of ways. One, you're trying to change the system. Yeah. Two, you know, the kids in high school, for example, it's their one shot at high school. Yeah, yeah. So, so trying to figure out, are there things we can do in the more immediate term to make it better than it currently is? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. knowing that if we don't build that coherent system, we are not going to get the numbers of students. We, we want more and more students ready to avail themselves of these opportunities. Yeah. They may or may not choose to do so, but it mm -hmm. shouldn't be because they're not ready. Yeah. So, so really, you know, the, one, one of the things that we're hearing more and more about is the, and, and we see this in successful school districts, there's a lot of family engagement, yes. coherence, as you suggested, between the family values and, and the schools. In urban settings, in the work you do for school improvement, what, what part does family engagement play? So I'm going to go back to the equity audits as an example. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, we learned a lot during the pandemic because we used to historically, it wasn't always with equity audits. It might've been <clears throat> with some other type of school readiness assessment, but you know, we would do focus groups. And um, I'm sure this won't surprise you, but sometimes a school invites parents to a focus group. It's at a time of day that is not convenient for many parents. Mm -hmm. The school, depending on the student assignment mechanisms of a district, the school may not even be a convenient location for parents, and it may or may not be seen as a welcoming environment. So yeah. even prior to the pandemic, um, we did a lot more with, well, let's have the focus group in a community center or some other, you know, some place in that community that was seen as a safe and welcoming space. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then um, language and culture have a lot to do with welcoming space as well. Uh, we have more and more staff who are bilingual in Spanish, sometimes in other languages, and then making sure to the extent we do not have staff who speak those languages, that we get assistance from the district to do that. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, um, so limited success, to put it mildly, to get parents to come or families to come yeah. to Zoom focus group. So what we started doing was getting a list of parents uh, or of families contact information from the district and doing random selection and doing short phone calls. Yeah. And actually uh, our teams tell me there was better success with the phone calls for a few reasons. One, you're just talking to that individual. So, you know, sometimes a focus group will um, only one or two people talk. Yep, and yep. other people don't. And that could be for a whole number of reasons. Yeah. Um, so we've actually found these, these briefer phone conversations to be more inclusive of mm -hmm. multiple mm -hmm. voices and really 
making sure that people aren't just in the room, so to speak, but are yeah. actually heard from. Engaged and heard. Yeah. That, that's a great, that's a great example. And one of the things I, the two, the one, one more personal, safer, comfortable, people don't feel like competing for space. But the other thing you said, that's a random selection. Yeah. So you really can't answer the question that you really did make efforts to have a representative sample. Right. And as you know, um, often if a principal calls families to a focus group, it's not a representative yes. sample. Yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. I see a lot of burnout in our, our colleagues across the age range. And it seems to me the work you're doing demands uh, high tolerance for ambiguity and failure. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you manage that? So I do think this is not an original thought, but you know, people talk about you have to look for the joy in your work. And I think that's really important. And the joy in my work is one, hearing about how our work has helped people in various settings, hearing from uh, practitioners themselves. And also really by having the privilege of supporting and learning from our incredibly talented team at Mass Insight. I think what people say about having to find the joy is really Mm -hmm. important when you think about Mm -hmm. not burning out. So ways I find the joy are hearing about how our work has helped people in um, given sites that Mm -hmm. have come from, you know, sometimes people actually collect testimonials, but it also, um, we do um, qualitative and quantitative research on the impact of our own work. So it's also just yesterday, I was sitting with with the school improvement team looking at data on what people have been um, saying about how our work was impactful. The other way I personally find joy in this work is um, I have the privilege of supporting and learning from a really talented and now highly diverse team of people. And so there really is a reciprocal passion and excitement for the work. And so I think um, you have to focus on the progress you've made. You have to focus on continuously improving your work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and ideally, you get to do it with really great people, um, which is my case. Well, you know, um, so, so you speak to what I keep hearing as a key element in school improvement, which we don't talk a lot about which is having a highly functional team. Not everyone that you like, doesn't have to be people you like, not to have people who look like you or act like you. Right. The leader, primary responsibility of the leader is to create a team Absolutely. that works well together, mutually supportive, uh, common goals, and persist in the yeah. face of challenges and using data to continue improve. But that is, that is one of the important parts of school change. Yeah, building on what you said about building a team. Um, One thing in our theory of action, an element is called collective responsibility. Mm -hmm. And it really Mm -hmm. is about building that um, 
building that team and that culture mm-hmm. where everyone is invested in playing a role in the success of students and the success yeah. of the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And finding ways again to measure that, identify, help people grow mm-hmm. into that role. Yes. And help them move on when they don't, when it's not a good fit for them. Yes, that's a good thing to do too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not and, and not not put in terms of failure. You're being ineffective. It's that that this right. is what we're doing, and this may not work for you. And I've seen great teachers yeah. leave schools because it, that's right. the changing culture was not right for them, and it was good for the school and them. Right, because they may they often find a school culture that does is a good fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so if, this, this is a question I, I, I love. I love asking this question because I get some great responses. If you were going to turn to your younger self starting out, it's not what would be the advice you would give? You know, some our, our younger colleagues learning the field and getting going. What is it you think that you've learned that you wish you had known when you were starting? So I think the first thing is um, career. You know, people talk about career paths. And um, careers are not always and maybe not usually linear paths. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my advice to people is to be really open to opportunities and, mm-hmm. um, and new things. So, so actually, so I went to college um, and plan to be an economics and government major. I think as I unpacked that through my life, there was really the only reason, really, I was kind of interested in it. And that's what my father had majored in. I think I had a father complex, honestly. Um, Not in a bad way, but just, yes. So my sophomore year, I took a course called the Philosophical Analysis of Educational Concepts. Mm. And, to date myself, pardon, this was long before we were, anyone was talking about aligned standards and assessments, but um, this course was taught by the Socratic method. It was seminar style. And there was a lot about um, the difference between using different means to get to the same ends for different students versus different means to different ends for different students. Mm-hmm. And that course, changed the whole trajectory of my life because what I did, so as I told you um, before we got on here, I grew up in Springfield, Vermont. I went to Springfield High School, which was also the regional, still is, I believe, the regional vocational center. And I took the course announcement from my high school and I realized it was right there in black and white that it was different means to different ends for different kids. Um, and, um, I reflected back and it won't surprise you that, um, my classmates were not diverse racially and ethnically, yeah. in Vermont, but we mm-hmm. were at the time, very diverse, quite diverse socioeconomically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and socioeconomics dr- drove a lot yeah. At, yeah. with regard to who was in what classes. Yeah. And then as I went to college, um, Springfield was a machine tool town. Um, many of my classmates went through something called the co-op program. So by their senior year, they were working half time in these shops. And generations before mine had a pension, full benefits, and a, and a wage that could support a family. 
Um, so they really were set for life. Um, as I went to college, every one of those shops left the community. And um, I remember my mother, who my late mother, who was chair of the school committee for a number of years, saying, you know, the problem is many of these kids aren't prepared for anything else. Yeah. And I thought that is just wrong. Yeah. That is fundamentally wrong that mm -hmm. we, and I, I had vivid recollections of classmates who in, you know, in a few classes that were untracked were clearly bright, engaged. I mean, I did not believe for a minute that those tracks conveyed anything about a student, you know, my classmates potential. Yeah. yeah. And yet they had enormous impact on their opportunity. And so that's what got me into education. So I, so I would say, you, always, you know, I always had a plan. Yeah. There were lots of deviations. Then I got into education and um, I started um, out and someone mentioned, you know, you might really be in like public policy. I didn't even yeah. know what public policy was, um, but I, and, you know, eventually I became a superintendent. And I, so, so the through line of my career has been trying to think about the, um, the interactions between policy and practice, mm -hmm. all with that overlay of equity, but I never would have predicted, you know, in high school or as I was in college, what my career would have been. So be open to opportunities and yep, yep. avail yourselves of possibilities. I mm -hmm. also, I learned a lot by, I kind of deliberately picked things I wanted to learn from people, particularly mm -hmm. early in my career. So I had the good fortune of working with Ted Sizer early on. And he always talked about the blameless critique. Mm -hmm. So I watched Ted, countless times around the country talk with teachers and administrators and others about, you know, it's not your fault, it's not my fault, but the system in which we are asked to work in the American high school yeah. is broken. And I think, um, and there were other people that I said, okay, this person's really good at this. And, and I can learn about it. And then my third piece of advice or something I learned over time was you learn an enormous amount talking with people. And um, often if you ask people to do an informational interview or have a cup of coffee, um, you learn a lot yeah. and you, and it helps you meet other people as well. Um, yeah. So, so I, I'm a little bit socially shy, but you shouldn't be shy. <laughs> That's right. Well, before I let you go, I'd be really interested in hearing from you. You know, Ezra Klein does this great. What are the What are the three books you've read? Yeah. But I, what are the three podcast experiences that you would recommend people have that you that yeah. you've had recently that you'd want to share? So not so. Some of this is recent, and some of it's less recent. Um, I really love um, work that kind of pulls the pieces or the threads together. You know, it's mm -hmm. not many of the 
the issues we're trying to address in education and in our society, they don't sit in any one sector. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love Richard Rothstein's work, um, such as class in, class in schools and then the color, yeah. color of law that mm -hmm. really got me to think about just the, the interactions between poverty, between the way our system, you know, really that um, segregation was by design in our mm -hmm. country. And many yeah. of the, um, and we, we have not overcome the way that, you know, our systems were fundamentally um, designed. So that's one. Um, I also, I frequently listen to the podcast, The Education Gadfly um, by the Fordham Institute. Um, they present or, you know, talk with a variety of people, um, variety of perspectives. And I, and it's uh, kind of bite-sized pieces, you know, if you're going mm -hmm. for a drive or you're gardening or whatever, you yeah, can listen yeah. to that. Uh, they also highlight recent research. And then my third recommendation is um, do something that gives you joy and brain space. And it'll be different for you and different for me. Yeah. Yeah. But um, going back to your earlier questions about burnout and um, that sort of thing, I think um, uh, speaking for myself, I function a whole lot better both personally and professionally, if I give myself a little time to think and time, time reconnect. Yeah. Weed yeah. The, weed in the garden for me sometimes is most satisfying. I do that I too. And, and just kind of take it up, I'm done, my body's moving, I'm yeah. accomplishing something, but it's- And you can think. And I can think and, and I can relax. Exactly. Well, so I want to thank you so much for the work that you do for the, the state and kids in our environment and how important that is. And I want to thank you for sharing time with us. And Hardin, I want to thank you. Um, uh, I have appreciated getting to know you as a colleague and I hope a friend. I consider you a friend and um, you've done an, an enormous amount for Boston, um, for BU and, and many other places. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, you have a great day. You take care, be well, and we'll be in touch and, and, and All right. enjoy your summer. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. The development of this podcast is made possible with the generous support from the BU's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development and a grant from the Kern Family Foundation. Thanks also to Lizzie Barquet for her editorial and production work on this podcast. The music you're, listening, you're hearing is Bluesy Vise by Doug Maxwell, produced by Media Right Productions. I'm Hardin Coleman, and thank you so much for listening.